Take your Bibles. Turn with me to Psalm 37. Psalm 37. Does anybody still bring a Bible to church? Raise your Bible if you, if you do. Okay, good. There's a few of you. That's a, I think it's a good thing. How many of you say, oh, Pastor, I have mine on my phone. Let me see that. Yeah. Yeah, there, that's an increasing number all the time. Psalm 37. <clears throat> the psalmist says this, starting in verse 3. Trust in the Lord and do good. <clears throat> Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall, what, church? He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noon day. And here's your verse to read out loud. Say it. <coughs> oh, I don't like that part. Do you? Okay, I'm preaching to Dan today. Y'all can listen if you want, because I know none of you need it like I need it, but rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. You know, the instruction here is not just to wait. It's not just wait. It's what? It's wait patiently. That's what, the, what is being called for here by the psalmist. So I do have a title for this message, and it's called, It's in the Waiting. Say, say that with me. How many of you say, turn to your neighbor and say, I already don't like this sermon. Go ahead and tell <coughs> How many of you would be bold enough to say that you really excel at this thing called waiting patiently? Let me see your hand. Oh, good. So I'm preaching to pretty much everybody in the house today. That's good to know. By the way, uh, Becky just left to go. Uh, she's announcing the women's retreat and all the other language services just now, so that's what she's doing. I'll, I'd love to hear her try to do that in Swahili and French and Spanish. I'm sure she'll have some help. Ladies, I sure hope you'll sign up today in the West Lobby. We need you to sign up so that they can do a, a really good job of preparing for you. You make that so much easier when you go ahead and get signed up and don't wait till the last minute. Waiting patiently. So you've already admitted that you're not much better at it than I am. Maybe a little better, but uh, Friday night, uh, two nights ago, I was conducting the um, memorial service for our dear brother who passed away, Tim Rafe. Um, and so I was finishing the service, and the family member, Suzanne, his, his widow, was here at the front, and other family members, most of them I, I don't know that I knew. And toward the end, right about here where Frank and Mary are seated, was a, a very uh, a lovely mother, young mother, and she had a little boy with her. He looked to be, couldn't be more than five years old. And all he was dressed. He, was, he looked great. He had dress slacks and a bow tie, and he looked great. His hair was just all in place. And I really hadn't noticed him much. He'd been pretty quiet. And I came to the end, and I, I gave a closing benediction uh, about down here. As soon as I finished, I walked straight over to give a, a greeting to, uh, to, to Suzanne, uh, Tim's widow. And I went, and I was meeting the other family members and shaking hands with those who, who wanted to do that. And I made my way down here, and I saw this fine little boy. And I, I stuck my hand out to see if he'd shake my hand. And he'd put his hand out. And the first thing he said is, can I talk now? So either he thought I had done plenty of talking already, which was possible, 
or what, I, what was obvious is his mother had said, you are in church and you will not talk the whole time you're in church. So he had just bottled everything up. And uh, so he, and I, I actually, I thought he did pretty good with the patiently waiting, but I mean, the minute he had a chance, can I talk now? So if you're like me, then waiting for anything uh, or anything associated does not come easily, much easier for you than it does for me. Let me show you some phrases I really don't like that I have to live with. You walk into a restaurant, you say, I need a table for two, and they say, that will be 45 minutes and you want to turn around and walk out, right? And sometimes you do. Or I, another one I don't like is uh, flight 2973 will be delayed for an hour and a half. I don't like that one. Or I don't like phrases like there's been a setback. Uh, I don't like that phrase. Or we're going to take a pause here. How long is that pause going to be? Uh, or how about the word quarantine, which means you're going to have to wait, right? We've, we've gotten pretty familiar with that one. Or another one is shipping delays. Yes, sir, Mr. Smith, you can order it today, and between four and six months, it will be here. How many know what I'm talking about? Or another one, traffic. Traffic on, uh, on 820 or wherever, 35, that's another one that's you know, it's, it's challenging to me. So let me tell you something about this phrase, wait patiently, that the psalmist uses in Psalm 37. It's two words for us in English, wait patiently, two words for us. However, in the original Hebrew, it's only one word, which I really cannot pronounce, and because uh, it starts with a C-H. Go ahead and put that up. So I know that's in the back of the throat somewhere, like cool, something like, hey, that was pretty good, wasn't it? Came out better than I thought. But what it means is we have two words for wait patiently. In the Hebrew, it's cool. Uh, just be glad you're not standing anywhere close to me when I say, when I say that. But what it means, it's, it's, it's definition is to be twisted and writhing and suffering torture is actually the meaning of that one word in Hebrew, which means to us, wait patiently. When I see suffering torture, I realize the Lord knows me, knows that I'm not good with waiting patiently. And, and uh, he must certainly know how difficult it is for us to wait. So the story, the biblical story I want to take you to, to talk about this, which I, I think it graphically displays this idea of waiting about as, any, uh, as good as any that you'll find, is the story of Noah and the ark. So I know that our kids in the room today know this story as well. Now, cross-referencing is something that we do in biblical studies. Um, it's when you find a certain word in the Bible and you can trace it. You trace it to its original root, whether it's the Hebrew in the Old Testament or Greek in the New Testament, and you find out where else in Scripture that that root word has, has been used. Thankfully, today, we have all kinds of wonderful tools. I'm blessed with them, wonderful tools that you can do all kinds of depth of cross-referencing and find out where this word uh, it applies here. So if I'm going to look up this word, C-H-U-W-L, if I'm going to look up that word, I can find out it was used here in Psalm 37, and guess where else it was used? It showed me when I did the research that the very same Hebrew word used in Psalm 37 for wait patiently is used in the story of Noah in Genesis chapter 8, verse 10, where we read these words. After waiting another seven days, which means twisting, writhing, suffering, torture, Noah released the dove again. 
Now, folks, here's what you got to say about Noah. If anybody was good at waiting or seemed to display waiting well, it was, it was Noah. He, Noah waited for years for the rain to actually even come. This was after God told him to build a boat when nobody had ever even heard of a boat, and he was getting ridiculed and mocked. And then once the rain did begin to come, then he had to wait for it to stop raining. And then once it stopped raining, he then had to wait for the waters to recede. And once the waters receded, he had to wait to get off the boat. So it appears, uh, Noah appears to be one who has excelled in this exercise called waiting. Therefore, and I know you're not excited about today. I think you're going to sit there and be real quiet on me because you're not going to like this. But we're going to learn lessons today from Noah. How many say, Pastor Dan, I'm in? Amen. All right. Number one, if you're taking notes, write this down. If you're not taking notes, write this down. <laughs> Number one, circumstances rise quickly, but they recede slowly. Do I have a witness in the house this morning? In reading the story of Noah, Scripture says that it began to rain and the waters rose quickly, but they receded slowly. Now, I cannot help, folks, but relate this to how quickly the circumstances of our lives appear. That phone call came quickly. You didn't even know before that phone rang what you were going to hear. It came quickly. But the circumstance created by it, it took forever for it to go away. The fight sprung up quickly. Being laid off at work, it came almost instantaneously. The cancer came quickly. I had a call this week from a dear brother in our church. Had no idea until they told him on, I believe it was Thursday, stage four. That's what they told him. Came up quickly. He had no clue going into that. The financial hardship came quickly, but it always seems like they resolve slowly. Now, let's look at this timeline here for Noah's situation. I'm in Genesis chapter 8. I'm going to start with verse 3. So the floodwaters gradually receded from the earth after 150 days, exactly five months from the time the flood began, the boat came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. <clears throat> Two and a half months later, as the waters continued to go down, other mountain peaks became visible. And then another 40 days, after another 40 days, Noah opened the window he had made in the boat and released a raven. The bird flew back and forth until the floodwaters on the earth had dried up. I'm skipping to verse 10. After waiting another seven days, Noah released the dove again. This time the dove returned to him in the evening with a fresh olive leaf in its beak. Then Noah knew that the floodwaters were almost gone. He waited another seven days, and then he released the dove again. And this time it did not come back. Now, Noah was only a mere 601 years old. Man, I got a long way to go. On the first day of the new year, 10 and a half months after the flood began, 
The floodwaters had almost dried up from the earth. Noah lifted back the covering of the boat. That's how we know it was a convertible, okay? Noah lifted back the covering of the boat and saw that the surface of the ground was drying. Two more months went by, and at last the earth was dry. And then God said to Noah, leave the boat, all of you, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. If you total all that up, it's 12 and a half months of being in a boat. So I think it's fair to say Noah understood something about waiting. Even though the scriptures tell us that the floodwaters rose quickly, but they receded very slowly. I want us to really get that this morning because I think there's something here for us. Your wedding probably happened rather quickly. I mean, when you, if you were married in this room and you came down the aisle and you were here, it was just a matter of minutes until you were, were married at that point. So in that sense, a wedding itself happens quickly, but how many know it takes a really slow, long, steady pace to build a healthy marriage? Oh, my goodness. Do we need to talk about marriage this morning? (laughs) Children can come into your life rather quickly. But does anybody know that raising kids can be a slow, sometimes gut-wrenching, writhing, maybe even suffering process? So you are awake. This is one you need to really listen to. Trust can be shattered in an instant. But it can take almost a lifetime to gain it back. That's serious for some folks in the room today. It can be shattered in an instant of time by one piece of news, one thing. And it can take a lifetime to gain it back. Here's another one. Your credit score was destroyed very quickly by a couple of bad choices. And it would take a long time of waiting patiently, cool, for it to come back. So circumstances rise quickly. They recede slowly. And that's okay because God is doing something in the waiting. I want you to say after me, it's in the waiting. God's doing something in the waiting. Let the church say amen. So let me say something about your time of waiting as I go to point number two. Your waiting, are you listening to me? Your waiting could be a forced rest. Could be. You may not be happy about the waiting, may not be comfortable, may not be pleasant even, but it's possible that God is forcing you into a time of rest. He's making you rest. As we know, Noah spent very, a very significant time, years, in building and constructing that ark. Imagine all the cutting. Those of you who are woodworkers and, and actual craftsmen uh, at, at this sort of thing and building, imagine the cutting and, the, and getting all the, the trees necessary to get the, the lumber and nailing and fastening and so on and so on. And, and every day he knew how much he had was going to probably have to get done today and was thinking ahead about what the next part of the process is going to be and then suddenly sit and rest. No more building, not anymore. 
You know, Noah, what you're going to do? you got 12 and a half months ahead of you. You know what you're going to do for the next 12 and a half months, Noah? Scoop poop. That's what you're going to do. <laughs> Can I get a witness this morning? But you're going to rest. You're going to rest. Nothing for you to control. Nothing for you to do. And I, God, I'll decide where this boat goes. I have to believe that Noah learned how to trust God while he was adrift with nothing at all to let him know where he was at any given moment. He didn't have a GPS. I, don't, I can't find in Scripture where he had a GPS. No landmarks were visible to him whatsoever. And when I consider this idea that my waiting could be a forced rest, it, it causes Psalm 23 to make a little more sense to me and to take on a little more poignant meaning, meaning when it says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He, I'm sorry, to lie down in green pastures. <clears throat> you know, um, we love the pretty pictures and the lovely drawings that are, you know, it's a pretty cute little lamb lying down peacefully. And, uh, and the whole picture is, is restful and, and lovely to behold, and that's great. But the scripture says, he makes me lie down. There's a sense of heavy-handedness to that. There's a sense of God is giving a clear directive. I'm going to put you in a place where you must lie down in green pastures. Isn't that basically what happened with our quarantine? <laughs> you were forced to rest. Some of you didn't change clothes or shower for days, right? You went from the bed to the fridge to the couch. Repeat, bed, fridge, couch. Repeat, am I right? That's what happened. You were basically in what could be described as a forced rest. I've even heard it said during our, our time of quarantine that factories weren't pumping pollution into the air. And they said that the rivers in Italy, I found this out, rivers in Italy, for the first time in centuries, you could see the bottom. Why? Because there were no boats, there was no pollution going in. Everything came to a rest. It's almost as if God was saying, I want the whole world to rest. And that takes me back to our original Psalm 37 text, because we focused on wait patiently, but right before that it says this in Psalm 37, verse 7 says, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. It is interesting to me that, that, same, that, that in that same verse of Scripture, he uses the verb rest and then the verb wait and puts them together, causing them to be basically one in the same when I understand that our culture sees that differently. Here's how we tend to see it. When we have to wait, then we become restless. What we do, when we have to wait, we become restless. But God seems to be indicating that he causes us to wait so that we will become restful. One of the greatest preachers of all time, Charles Spurgeon, I know you've heard the name, said it best when he said, time is nothing to him, referring to God. Time is nothing to God. Let it be nothing to thee. Time is nothing to God, and that's why we have such a difficult time waiting on God, because for God, time is nothing, but to us, it's everything. I, I don't know about your testimony in this, but I can certainly tell you this about mine. When I look back 
over the course of my life, I realize that every time, without fail, 100% of the time, God was right about the timing and I was wrong. Every time. Even when I thought I had it together and I knew the plan and I had it all laid out, God's timing was right and my timing actually was pretty pathetic. And if, and if it would have happened the way that I wanted things to happen, I would have messed things up royally. And yet every time God brought his miraculous supernatural timing, even when it meant for me, rest, rest, rest. So it leaves you and me this morning with a question that's booming in the middle of of our mess, and it's this. How can I rest when everything around me is flooding? How do I do that? Oh, my goodness. You expect me to rest when there's so much that needs to be done, 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 done? Have you seen my list? How can I rest when everything around me is flooding? And, I, you know, I, I get it, folks. I live in the same world you do. It's a challenge to find rest. When your world around you is in a mess, when our emotions are fluctuating up and down, how do you, how do you find rest when your circumstances are, 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 are all up in the air, the chaos of our, chaos of our nation and the world, or, or, or your finances need uh, extreme attention, or your marriage is rocky or in a bumpy state right now, or your family, it's all going crazy, and the floodwaters are quickly rising. It's flooding everywhere. How do you find rest? I want you to look at this, Genesis 7, 18, speaking of Noah and the flood. As the waters rose higher and higher above the ground, the boat floated safely on the surface. So it really didn't matter how deep the waters got. It didn't matter. And we know that the waters got high enough to where they covered every single mountain and could have even gone higher than that. God was in control of that. But it didn't matter how high the waters got because God had given them a place of safety, a place of comfort, and a place of refuge. And that's what I'm saying to you today. Floodwaters may be raging all around you today. For some of you, I know that's true. But it does not matter how high those waters get. God has provided for you a, safe, a place of safety, a place of comfort, and a place of refuge. Let somebody say hallelujah. You know what, folks? When it comes to the whole floating on the boat thing, I'm not sure that we can say that they were really floating on a boat. I, I think that it wasn't the boat that gave them buoyancy in the flood. I think it was Noah's obedience that gave them buoyancy. Listen to it. Because if you flip back a couple of chapters into chapter 6, what you'll find is God coming down and saying to Moses, build a boat. Let's read it from chapter 6, verse 14 of Genesis. Build a large boat from cypress wood and waterproof it with, with tar inside and out and then construct decks and stalls throughout its interior. God's giving him specific instructions, tells him how to do it. Here's a deck, build it to this measurement. Here's the stalls, here's the other decks. And he gives him all these explicit instructions. And then here comes the key verse in verse 22 of chapter 6. So Noah did 
everything exactly as God had commanded him. It was Noah's obedience that gave them buoyancy and the ability to rise above the flood. So the question has to come to you and me today. How is God asking for our obedience? Are we even aware that God may be specifically asking for you to obey or for me to obey in some certain matter of your life? When I, you know, what I would love to do this morning, it'd be much more fun to get you all excited and preaching things like, God's going to make you float. It's going to be awesome. You're going to be able to uh, float and you can get through anything. But the truth of the matter is I would be doing you a great disservice without backing up two chapters and letting you know that it was Noah's obedience that caused them to float. His obedience that made them buoyant. So in what area of your life right now is God calling you to obedience Maybe he's saying, I want you to be obedient and forgive that person. I know it's difficult. I know how bad they hurt you, but he's calling you to forgive them so that when the flood waters of bitterness rise, that you still float on top of it. Maybe he's saying, and I get in trouble for this, I want you to be obedient and tithe. Why? So that when the flood waters of a down economy rise, you're going to be able to float right on top of it. Because God's blessing and favor is going to be upon you. And then let me boldly say this. It's not your ability to control your finances and control your stock investments and control your retirement account and control and control and, and control that's going to let you survive what might be coming in the, uh, the coming economy. No, it's your obedience. That's what's going to get you through. You build the boat of obedience, and God says, as long as you build what I tell you to build, I will get you through any flood that may come your way. It's a boat of obedience. Can I get a witness this morning? So when we get into the Word and say, God, and what do you need me to become obedient? That is part of our waiting process. Point number three. While you wait, be a dove, not a raven. While you wait, be a dove and not a raven. So we have to talk about the difference in the two. So finally the floodwaters stop and they begin to recede. It's been five months and the boat finally hits land. And though it stops raining after 40 days and 40 nights, they float for five months and then they strike land. They had to be thinking by now, after all this time, surely we can get off this boat by now. Surely we can take our masks off by now. Surely we've arrived. Surely we're almost there. The Bible says, "Uh uh-uh. You're going to wait another two and a half months and then another 40 days. And then it says that Noah opened the window. So the first option you have is, you can be a raven. Genesis 8, 6 says, So it came to pass at the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made. That caught my attention as I was studying this passage to deliver you today. I, uh, I underlined it in my notes. You may want to underline it in your Bible if you do that. Which he had made. 
The Bible says that Noah opened the window, but the Bible could have stopped right there. Noah opened the window. Okay, great. We would have said fine. But for some reason, Scripture goes on to say he opened the window which he had made. This window was something that gave them access. It was something that let light in. It was something that allowed fresh air to come in. And Noah seemed to know in advance when he was crafting this, uh, this vessel that he needed to build this thing in such a manner so as to ensure that he would not be isolated in darkness. And when you're building your life, be sure you build a window. What do you mean that by, by that, Pastor Dan? If you're going through a difficult season in your life, and you are one of those who has a particular proclivity to go into isolation, don't want people to know stuff's wrong with you, so you are one of those who will isolate in darkness, I'm telling you this morning, build a window. You need to let the light in. You need to let somebody in the church in. You need to let a friend in. You gotta let somebody walk this thing out with you. Verse 7, then he sent out a raven. And watch the characteristics of this raven, which kept going to and fro, to back and forth, until the waters had dried up from the earth. How exhausting would that have been for that poor little raven? I'm sure that when his little claws hit dry ground, he was, as we say in the South, smooth wore out. He was exhausted. So you and I have the option. We can be a raven if we want to. We can go to and fro. We can try to be in control. We can refuse to go back to the tent or back to the boat. Refuse to go back to the place of refuge. This raven decided to do life alone. And that's what was the choice he made in flying all over the place to and fro. That's choice number one. Or you can be a dove. Let me show the attribute of this dove. Chapter 8, verse 8. He, Noah, also sent out from himself a dove to see if the waters had receded from the face of the ground. But the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot. Now, clearly he's talking about the S-O-L-E of the dove's foot, which is, but it is a beautiful picture of our S-O-U-L. That God releases us into the world and we fly about trying to find a place where we can find rest for our S-O-U-L, soul. Verse nine says, and she returned into the ark to him, to Noah, for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. My question, next question to you is this. Where do you go when you can't find rest for your soul? Where do you go? Where? What do you do when you can't find rest for your soul? Do you return back to the heart of the Father? Or are you like the raven? I'm going to figure this out. I'll be the third job if I have to. I'm going to do this if I have to. I'm going to do that if I have to. I'll do whatever I have to do because I can do this. I'm a man. I'm a woman. 
I can figure this out. God says, it's okay. You want to be a raven? Go ahead. Keep going to and fro. Wear yourself out. But I want you to see this morning what I saw in Scripture this week. What happened with the dove? The last part of verse 9 of chapter 8. So he, Noah, put out his hand and took her, the dove, and drew her into the ark to himself. I'm going to propose to you this is an incredible picture of our Heavenly Father. He releases us with free will to roam wherever we want to go, fly around the world, trying to figure out what we can do with our lives, trying to be sure we have purpose for life. But then when I, I, when I get tired and my wings start flapping and I get worn out and I need rest for my soul, I've got to turn, turn and go back to the Father and allow him to draw me. He's reaching out through the, the window that he made, which he made. Hello. And have him take me back into his refuge. And the Bible tells us that the name of the Lord is a strong tower where the righteous can run and be safe. The Bible tells us that it's the name of the Lord. And by the way, his name is Jesus that Jesus is the place where you can go and you can be safe. And when you are exhausted and when you're weary and that time when you can find no place or no rest for your soul, God says, return to me, come back to me, remain in me and I'll remain in you. Come back to me and you will find rest. Be a dove, not a raven. Let the church say amen. amen. Last but not least, when, we, when we're exposed to flooding, and by the way, God, keep your hand of protection on those in the path of Hurricane Ida in Jesus' name. When we're exposed to flooding, all kinds of things, and we're waiting, and we're not doing a good job of waiting, but we're waiting, please know this, point number four, waiting can take you to new heights. Waiting can take you to new heights. Now, stay close with me here as I bring this to a close in a little while. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 8, verse 3. So the floodwaters gradually receded from the earth. After 150 days, exactly five months from the time the flood began, the boat came to rest where? on the mountains of Ararat. Now, I, I found a little something uh, interesting. If you look up the name, the mountains of Ar Ararat, you will find a, a definition or another title that it's gone by. It's called the curse reversed. The curse reversed. Just a little tidbit I thought was interesting. Because the flood was a kind of a curse in that it killed everything. And if you study these mountains, by the way, it's believed by scholars that these mountains are the Kurdish range of mountains in South Armenia today. And in those days, and even in some ways in these days, this was the highest point and they were completely inaccessible. The tops of these mountains, uh, mountains of Ararat, were completely inaccessible. In fact, um, 
if you were alive in those days, you would have stood at the bottom of that mountain and you would have looked up and said, no human being has ever gone to the top of that mountain. Nor will any human being ever go to the top of that mountain. It's so far up, that is not accessible by mankind. And little did they know that the floodwaters that came, the thing that they had to wait on for so long, the thing that was gut-wrenching, the thing that was frustrating, the thing that they could not seem to get over, and they had to wait and wait and wait and wait, and the thing that seemed to be such a great inconvenience when the boat hit the mountain and they got off the boat, they were standing on the top of Mount Ararat. They were standing where no man had ever stood before because they had reached a place they had reached a height that heretofore had never been reached. And if we will just be patient and wait patiently, if we can find the way to wait patiently, wait on the Lord. Don't be a raven. Don't try to take control. Let God be in control. Don't try to do this by yourself. If you will just wait patiently on the Lord and find his rest in waiting, I believe that it is in the waiting that God is slowly taking us higher and higher and higher than we thought was ever going to be possible. Reach levels that you never knew would be possible. So what you thought was holding you back might be taking you higher. Hallelujah. If you can just rest and know that God is working, and then we can stay in God's promise, stay in the boat, remain in me, Jesus said, and I'll remain in you. So from the story of Noah and the ark this morning. Let me just recap it for you quickly as the musicians want to come. Number one, circumstances rise quickly, but they recede slowly. Number two, your waiting could be a forced rest. Number three, while you wait, be a dove, not a raven. Number four, waiting can take you to new heights. Before we close this service, and I ask everyone to remain, please, with us. We've got plenty of time. I want us to go to the table of the Lord. If you did not receive a cup with the communion elements when you came to the sanctuary this morning, could you please raise your hand either in the balcony or the lower floor? If you did not get the elements, please raise your hand. There's some down here, ushers. And actually, I'm raising my hand too. I'm sure mine's over there. Do you have another? You got plenty? Okay. Raise your hand. Balcony, lower floor, if you did not receive the elements of communion. Our table here is an open table. If you claim Jesus Christ as Lord, you're welcome to participate with us. I'm not, we're not ready to go to do it yet, but just in case this is your first time with us, you may have to work a bit to get that little clear plastic part off the top to get to the bread and then the be easier to get to the cup after that. Many of you have heard me say over the years that it has become increasingly rare in Christian music to find what we call true songs of consecration. All the ones that I know are very old. Uh, there is one that has come to mind to me this morning as I've delivered this message and the simple title is Submission. Some of you will remember it, you old timers will. Not what I wish to be nor where I wish to go. For who am I that I would choose my way?
the Lord will choose for me. Tis better far, I know. So let him bid me go or stay. A pastor acquaintance of mine introduced me to an obscure little verse in Psalm 5. It comes from the latter part of verse 3 from the Passion Translation, and it says this. Every morning, I lay out the pieces of my life on the altar, and I wait. I wait for your fire to fall upon my heart. I think for some people, this could become a morning prayer for you or a morning exercise of some kind. Every morning, I lay out the pieces of my life on the altar, and I wait for your fire to fall upon my heart. Or maybe you want to just breathe that prayer right now where you're seated this morning as we go to the table of the Lord in a submissive act of surrender or rededication to his will. So the pieces, what does it mean, the pieces of your life? Could be future pieces, could be dreams, could be hopes, could be ambitions. Pieces of my life include relationships. It may be for you also that the pieces that you're laying out on the altar is your job, your finances, broken pieces, places where you've been utterly shattered and broken. You're going to lay it on the altar and wait for his fire to fall upon your heart. It may be pain that you're suffering, pain of any kind, physical, emotional, whatever it is. Lord, I lay them on the altar and I wait for your fire to fall upon my heart. And we, of course, know that there are three things that fire does. When you pray this prayer, you're asking God to do one of these three things to every piece, all of the pieces of your life that you are laying on the altar. Number one, fire consumes. You know the sacrificial system. If you've read anything in the Old Testament at all, that they would offer a sacrifice and the Lord would come down and consume it by fire. When you lay the pieces of your life out and pray this prayer, you're basically saying, God, if you need to, if you need to, you can consume any part of me, which also means you can take it away if you want to. Take my dreams if they're not your dreams. Take them away. Take my ambitions. Take my plans if they're not your plans. Consume them, O God. So fire consumes. Second thing, fire purifies. But you might be saying when you take the pieces of your life and you lay them on the altar waiting for his fire to come, to fall upon your heart, you may be saying, God, here's my plans, here's my dreams, this is where I want my business to be in 10 years, and God might say, I'm not going to consume it, I want you to have that dream, but I'm going to purify your motives. I'm going to purify your heart so that you have that dream properly as you should. Fire consumes Fire purifies, but also fire ignites. When you lay out the pieces of your life every morning in this prayer and you wait for God's fire to fall upon your heart, it could well be that there's something in you that he wishes to ignite and set on fire for good purpose. And you will find that God will ignite something in you that maybe you didn't even know it was there 
There may be a passion within you that you're not even aware of. And when you pray that prayer, God can come and ignite it and let it become a blaze for his glory. He can ignite a passion within you for something he's calling you to do. Maybe there's something brewing within you. Writing a book. Writing a song. Starting a ministry. Whatever it is that God is calling you to do that advances his kingdom. When you lay out the pieces of your life, God can ignite something within you that you don't even know is there and set it ablaze for his glory. Not what I wish to be, nor where I wish to go. Lord, as I come to your table this morning, for who am I that I should choose my way? The Lord will choose for me. Tis better far, I know. So let him bid me go or stay. Would you stand with me, church, as we go to the table of the Lord?